Good morning from me. Hi, friends. Um, as Alan and Lucy have said, this morning we are picking up a series of sermons journeying through John's Gospel. So for those of you who are new to the Bible, getting to know it, that is the fourth book of the New Testament bit of your Bibles. And actually for all of you, whether you're new to the Bible or to the Bible, um, would you grab one? Would you get hold of one? Whether that's digital or paper, um, grab a Bible to hand now because um, I would love it if you follow through that with me this morning. Previously, we had in our series in John's Gospel, got up to the end of chapter 17. And at that point, as a church, we paused to look at the mission of God, uh, the mission of the kingdom of God, I should say, through the book of Acts. What that means is that if you're interested, you can go back and hear some of the previous John's Gospel messages uh, on the Kingdom Vineyard website and someone from our Kingdom Vineyard team will generously paste you the link into our Zoom chat any moment now, I'm sure, for those of you who want to go back. Um, in chapter 17 of John's Gospel, Jesus prayed a long and powerful prayer, sometimes called his high priestly prayer, for his disciples and actually including for us, which is very cool. We pick up the story this morning at the beginning of John's Gospel chapter 18, when Jesus's life and ministry begins its dark and painful turn towards the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to continue our journey through John's Gospel from beginning of chapter 18 until Easter, which should line up really nicely if the preaching team can count. But before we go there, um, turn with me in your Bibles that you've grabbed to Leviticus chapter 16. Keep a finger in John and uh, flick back. Leviticus, I want to take us back for a moment to the third book in the Bible, right at the beginning, and about three and a half thousand years back, to God giving Moses instructions for how God's people should live if they want him to live amongst them and to be their God have that open. I'm not going to read directly from it, but perhaps if I'm boring, you can skim Leviticus 16 while I'm speaking. There were a number of measures that God gave his people in order to keep them holy, to help them to deal with them becoming spiritually unclean, and in order to help them to become holy again. And one of the big practices that God's people were to do to maintain this relationship the high point of the book of Leviticus, which builds into this, into chapter 16, and then builds out again, is called the Day of Atonement. Atonement means to be at one with someone, at one and in this case, at one with God, to make up for anything that's come between us. And the Hebrew word that we've translated atonement has this sense of restoring relationship covering over, replacing and doing away with the things that damaged our relationship. And once a year, all of God's people as a national event, national holiday, kind of a bit like how we celebrate Christmas or Easter, God's people had this ceremony of making sure that the temple where God met with his people and the high priest who oversaw the temple and all who served in it were holy, freed from the sin that separates us from God purified. The place and the person whose job it was to represent us to God and God to us to allow that point and place of meeting had to be maintained as an unspoiled connection with him. And so the way that this happened 
involved the high priest purchasing a bull and sacrificing it for the sins of himself and his own family. That is recognizing the cost of his own sins and that those sins needed to be dealt with, put to death. And after dealing with the high priest's own sins, the high priest would then be able to carry out the ritual for making sure that all of God's people could be at one with God. This part, the part for all the people, involved two identical goats. These goats were, they had to be identical, they also had to be bought together, and then they would be randomly chosen for two different but important tasks. The high priest would draw lots, kind of like closing your eyes and sticking your hand in a raffle bag to draw two tickets, except asking God to guide us, which is what they used to do before we had the Holy Spirit. Then once the high priest had drawn these lots, one of the goats would be assigned as a holy sacrifice offering to God, a gift from God's people because they'd sinned. The other would then be assigned to have all of the sins of God's people placed onto it. And then, filled with the transferred sins of God's people, this goat would be sent away into the wilderness, far away from God's people, which is where we get the word scapegoat from. Fun fact, eh? You learned something this morning. Stay with me, though. Two identical goats, one devoted to God as a gift to apologise for the people's rebellion, and one devoted to Azazel, which is Hebrew for go-away goat with all of the sin and evil of God's people transferred from the people onto the goat, sent away to remove the sin. And, you know, entertainingly, a tradition seems to have developed where after a couple of hundred years of doing this, uh, they decided that not only should the goat be led away, but it should be led over a cliff just to make sure that it couldn't wander back into the camp, which I thought was pretty funny. Anyway, the bits of the ceremony where the high priest made atonement for sins, made atonement for his own sins, and then later on for the sins of the people, the high priest would take the animal, the bull for himself, the scapegoat for the people of Israel, and then pray a specific prayer over them. Now, there is a Jewish text, which Alistair Bullock is very kindly going to put up on our screens, called the Mishnah Yoma, written about 200 years after Jesus was born, 200 AD, which describes this historic practice of how the Leviticus 16 instructions were carried out. I shall read this for us. This is Mishnah Yoma, instructions of, of how the temple uh, events should be carried out. The high priest comes over to the scapegoat, places both his hands on it, and confesses. And he would say as follows, please Yahweh, your people, the house of Israel have sinned and done wrong and rebelled before you. Please Yahweh, grant atonement, please for the sins and for the wrongs and for the rebellions that they have sinned and done wrong and rebelled before you. Your people, the house of Israel, as it is written in the Torah of Moses, your servant, saying, for on this day atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you of all your sins before the Lord you shall be purified. And that bit is a quote from Leviticus 16 verse 30. And it carries on. And the, the priests and the people standing in the temple courtyard, when they would hear the explicit name, that is not just God or Lord, but the explicit name emerging from the mouth of the high priest, when the high priest did not use one of the substitute names for God, they would kneel and prostrate themselves and fall on their faces and say, blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. 
Thanks, Alistair. Lovely, Alistair. One peculiar and I think fascinating bit of this ceremony that we just read is that the high priest would actually say, actually pronounce the name of God. That was a one-off, once per year. Every other time God's people saw the name of God in scripture, instead of reading it out, Yahweh, they would instead say, Lord, or in Hebrew, Adonai. Now, friends, we could spend a whole series of talks looking at the name of God and what it has meant to his people. And I would love to, but we have not even got to our passage in John yet this morning. So for now, I just want to note this with you. When Moses talked with God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter three, he asked God his name. And God's answer was, I am that I am. I am that I am. And it's that Hebrew word I am that became God's name. It's from which we get the name written in Hebrew, Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H. Or yod chet vav chet my Hebrew is rusty. Uh, ask Veronica later or in the chat. Some people guess that this four-letter name was pronounced Yahweh. Others guess it was pronounced Jehovah, Yehovah. We don't actually know because of how rarely God's name was spoken out loud, because of the respect and the reverence that God's people had for the sound of God's name. The name of God was considered so holy because, amongst other reasons, if you pronounce God's name, it was like invoking his presence, calling him to be there. And he is so holy and so pure, so terrifyingly righteous, that we do not want to enter his presence lightly, flippantly. And so on the Day of Atonement and as part of a certain set ritual prayers, the high priest and only the high priest would declare the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And when the high priest spoke the name of God before all the people who were gathered for this atonement moment, where their sins were transferred from them onto this goat, at the declaring of God's name, Yahweh, everyone fell over. That was the tradition. People would fall down in worship at the very mention of the, the name of God, the I am, who was called upon and whose presence was invoked in that holy moment. I mean, it's, it's special, it's amazing, but it's, it almost seems a bit comical, maybe. For us in the vineyard, I don't know, maybe this is like us saying, come Holy Spirit, and then we all fall over. Some of us may be bowing our face to the ground in fear and adoration of God, or whether it's because his presence just knocked us out. Either way, Yahweh, woomph. I think this is a brilliant tradition. I think it's fascinating. And if you were a faithful member of God's people, and you knew the rituals of the temple where God met with his people, you knew the significance of the sacrifices and the reason behind them, and the things that happened at the temple, there are clues that you would pick up in the gospel stories of Jesus' life that without that temple and sacrifice knowledge, we otherwise might miss. As we get back into John's gospel, I want to share with you, John, the gospel writer, knew these rituals. There is a hint in John chapter 18, verse 16, that John has a connection with the high priest who ran the temple in Jesus' time. 
John's connected to the to the temple crew. And so the things that happened to Jesus and that Jesus chose to do were signposts and fulfillments of these ancient temple God meeting rituals. They would have been sparking like fireworks going off in John's mind as he witnessed them. And he made sure that he recorded these signs for us to see too. That is a lot of context to beginning with and uh, lots of time for you to have got a Bible to hand. So let us dive back into John's gospel. And as we do, there are two main points I want us to take away from the passage this morning. Point number one for us. Jesus chose to make you holy. Jesus chose to make you holy. That's number one. And number two is a challenge. I want us to ask ourselves this morning, am I fighting the right fight? Am I fighting the right fight? There you go, there are your two points. My friend Steph is now going to read for us in the NIV translation. I've asked her to make a slight edit and read what the original language says literally when Jesus speaks in verse five. See if you can spot the difference. And thank you, Alistair, for the words and Steph for the reading. There, I think I'm unmuted now. Um, John 18 verses one to 12. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. Amen. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Alistair. Friends, did you spot the difference? Our Bibles translate the Greek ego eimi to I am he or I am him, which is an entirely legitimate translation. That's fine. The way the language works allows us to read it that way. But I believe that the force of ego eimi, I am, is significant in this moment. I think it explains what happens. John, the author of this gospel, is making sure 
that as we watch this scene, we get some important facts about Jesus. If this were a movie, John the director would be slowing down and zooming in on certain bits to emphasise them to make absolutely sure that we pick up these clues. So with that in mind, let's go back and let's walk through this passage a little bit, starting at verse one, and I'll begin with the first of my two points for us this morning. Jesus chose to make you holy. Chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse one, Jesus, after his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, takes his disciples into a garden. I think it's significant that John doesn't tell us the name of the garden, Gethsemane. We can find it easily enough in the other gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I think it's significant that John wants us to focus on the fact that it's a garden. Well, what comes to mind when we think of gardens? What other gardens in the Bible are there that John could be trying to get us to think about? Eden? Just as the beginning of John's gospel brought to mind Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I think here John wants us to think back to Genesis 3 and the place where, on the one hand, humanity walked in the actual presence of God, and on the other hand, it was the place of our mortal showdown between good and evil. There, the devil offered an alternative to God's plan, an alternative to living submitted to God's rule and in loving relationship with him, and said, to paraphrase, don't trust God, take control yourselves, do it your own way. And as you know, humanity fell for it and chose to break relationship with God. We've been falling for it ever since too. Here though, here in John chapter 18, Jesus, the new model humanity, enters the garden knowing all that's coming, knowing the prophecies, knowing what's been spoken over him, knowing who he is, knowing God's mission and the plan that Jesus goes to the cross for us to reunite us to God, to atone us with him, and knowing that in his human side, if you like, this is Jesus's last opt-out opportunity before that painful journey comes to its full climax. This moment is the new Adam the new man, Jesus, in his own garden showdown. And victory for Jesus in this garden doesn't look like defeating a mob. It looks like choosing God's plan over his own life. Victory looks like resisting temptation, choosing loving obedience, even knowing what it will cost him, his own life and a painful, humiliating death. So, Will Jesus choose submission to Father God or to opt out of that mission and rebel, leaving humanity stranded without hope and the devil in power over humanity? Obviously, it wasn't an easy or a pleasant choice. And although, fascinatingly, John doesn't tell us about Jesus's anguished prayer, anguished wrestle in that garden, we read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels. And Alistair, if you'd be as kind as to just pop up on the screen for me, the third 
chunk. We read in Matthew, Mark's and Luke's Gospels how Jesus was distressed, he was grieved, he was agitated, how he asked his disciples to wait near him and pray for him. And we read how Jesus prayed, starting in verse 35 of Mark chapter 14. Jesus prayed, he threw himself on the ground, praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Thanks, Alistair. We can also read in Matthew, um, Matthew's Gospel, which I haven't given Alistair to put up on the screen. Don't panic, mate. Jesus has a second prayer in Matthew's Gospel. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So does Jesus like the plan that he knows is ahead of him? Clearly not. Does he want it? Not if he can possibly avoid it. Will he submit to the father's plan in order to fulfill the goals of God to restore us to him? It is a decisive, albeit pained, yes. Why doesn't John tell us about this wrestle, this decision-making prayer? In case you're wondering, the, the difference in gospel accounts isn't contradiction, I'm sure of it. It's certainly not John saying that this wrestling prayer didn't happen. He's just doing the director's job of choosing which scenes to emphasize. John's making sure that what we see, the definite impression we're left with is how Jesus chose to go with God's plan. That he was in control of what happened to him. Even if we know from the other gospels what it cost Jesus to choose to obey his father. And we see this Jesus chose emphasis in verse four of our chapter 18 reading, when John pointedly tells us that Jesus knows all that is going to happen to him. And it's Jesus who approaches the mob, not running away, not even waiting for them to speak first, or even for Judas's betraying kiss, which John also leaves to the other Gospels to tell us about. John makes sure that the bit of the encounter that we remember is that Jesus chose this. It wasn't pleasant. But Jesus chose to go through this to allow you to be restored to relationship with God. Jesus chose to make you holy in his place and at painful cost to him. But God the Son, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the three in one together, wanted you to be restored to him. And then there's this moment in verse five that seems so strange when we read it, that only John thinks to record for us, but is packed full of significance. Jesus says, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing with them. And when Jesus says, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground without the context that I shared from, from Leviticus this morning and, and the Mishnah Yoma, without that it reads like something from the Keystone Cops or a pantomime where all the baddies all stumble into each other and fall over in a big group. Why did this happen? 
What is John doing making a point of this when he's left out these other important moments? It's the Day of Atonement. Jesus, our ultimate, the ultimate high priest, says, I am, effectively calls the divine name. And the congregation, here made up of temple staff and Roman soldiers, draw back and fall to the ground. The authority and the power of God's name, invoking his presence, and actually, of course, there he was, the Son of God, Jesus, stood amongst them. This had such an effect on them. So why did they all fall over? Was it habit? Probably not, for the Romans at least. Was it, as some Bible commentaries suggest, that they were just so impressed by his innocence and his courage that they all fell over? Maybe? Was it a miraculous that would have its own slow-mo wave graphic in the movie of this moment? Who can know? Whatever the case, John saw what was being represented here. John saw that in this moment, Jesus was the high priest declaring the name of God and the presence of God and making atonement for God's people's sin and separation from him. John saw what happened with Jesus, the mob falling over. He connected the dots to the day of atonement and realized the significance of what he was witnessing. Wow. I think it's incredible. Oh, well, okay, what about the sacrifices? Well, this high priest has no need to purchase a bull to sacrifice for his own sin. Jesus' connection with Father God was already fully clean and holy, so no bull needed. And, okay, what about the goats? Well, in the Day of Atonement, the two goats were assigned, one to be sacrificed to God, a guilt offering, a holy, perfect guilt offering to God to say sorry, and the other to receive all of God's people's sin onto it and then to be removed. Here stands Jesus, the high priest, who has just prayed his own sin transfer prayer of let your will be done, Father, opting into the transaction of the cross, affirming his willingness to do God's work, to be sacrificed as a holy, perfect sin offering to the Father and to carry all of the sins of God's people with him. To have those sins not sent into the wilderness, but put to death on this occasion in him on the cross. Jesus is both goats, as well as the high priest. In this reenactment that is the ultimate fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him in verse 4, is willingly playing all the key parts. Just in case you're wondering, hang on, wasn't the cross a fulfillment of Passover? Yes, also yes, but that's for another day. Jesus wants us to make, uh, sorry, John talking about Jesus wants us to make no mistake that Jesus chose, chose to atone for us, to restore our relationship with God. Jesus chose to make us holy. He even, in verse 8, gives a microcosm of his whole mission. I am, and take me, so that you can let my precious disciples go. There it is in a nutshell. 
We will see in the coming weeks how this faithful obedience of Jesus plays out, and I suspect some of you know the story already. But in case you are new with us this morning, or in case you need to hear it, the Son of God, Jesus, has made an unbreakable way for you to be reunited with God. He came to be born and live as a human being, and through his sacrificial death, fulfilled everything that in our own strength we could not. Your being restored to God, your relationship being reset with him, doesn't require work from you. No matter what you've done or not done, Jesus has covered it. He is atoned. He has atoned you with God. You can be restored to the loving relationship with God that he made you for because Jesus chose to go through the trial and torture of Easter so that we could be made holy, could meet with God, could welcome his presence. If you think of the temple and everything, and the fear and the, the respect that God's people had for it. If you think of the presence of God descending in a cloud in the Old Testament stories and God's people just being really wary of this is, this is pure, we can't touch this. Friends, at great personal cost, Jesus chose to make you holy. To make you a fitting recipient and receptacle of God's presence. So what are we to do with this life-altering truth? For some of us, it's to receive it for the first time and to say, yes, I want this. To receive Jesus' work on our behalf, to say, Jesus, thank you. I want this for my life. Apply it to me. Count me in. To turn to God and to be made holy, which also includes giving up the things that separate us from him. That act is the one that we call repenting, literally turning to God, away from the things that pull us away from him or idols that sit on the throne that he should occupy in our hearts. For some of us who've already received the universe's greatest offer and begun a relationship with God, perhaps we need some maintenance. Perhaps this morning we need to ask God to help us examine our lives, any acts or habits that we've picked up that are unclean and we need once again to be made holy if that's us if that's you that's okay he's made atonement for these things too so bring them to him as lizzie invited us earlier to bring them to the foot of the cross repent of these two receive him and his presence again maybe there's a third group among us this morning for some of us, a different challenge. If you count yourself Jesus' disciple, his apprentice, we have a challenging role model to follow. Jesus chose submission to the Father, even at great personal cost. Jesus chose God's way, not what he clearly would have chosen for himself, and chose to own that way as his committed plan and to faithfully carry out God's work. 
that can be tough. But I think God wants us to be willing to follow him, even in costly situations. I think that God wants us to pray, for example, as I shared at the beginning of this year, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. That's Psalm 8611. It may be that in the coming months and years, we find ourselves in gardens of decision where there is an easy way out and there is the choice of following God's truth, walking in his way. And we will need united hearts to lovingly fear God. If we do find ourselves in that place, our ultimate example is Jesus, choosing God's way, with all of the immeasurable good that came from it, even eyes wide open to what that would cost. On to point two, and you'll be glad to hear that it's much shorter. My second point for us this morning, am I fighting the right fight? In verse 10 of John 18, suddenly, out of nowhere, Peter has a sword, and he's got one of them. Peter goes to the servant of the high priest, Malchus, and he chops off his ear. Yeah, come on, great. And Jesus immediately calls a stop to this. And then even Luke chapter 22, verse 51 tells us, Jesus then goes back and heals the servant's ear and undoes it, which I think is also a little bit of comedy in this otherwise dark scene. Jesus, actually, even at this opportunity to fight or to, to use the fight as an excuse to run away, Jesus reaffirms his commitment to God's plan. But that's still point one. Let's take a look at Peter and his pointy shenanigans for a moment. What is Peter doing with a sword? I want to credit my friend Gregor, hi Gregor, thanks, for observing this to me. Other weapons that you could carry into battle have other uses. An axe could chop trees. A spear could be for hunting, but a sword is uniquely designed for fighting people. Peter drawing a sword can only be for fighting. And more than that, Peter having a sword with him is a premeditated act. Peter planned to be ready to fight. That was basically a quote from Gregor, just go and talk to him, he's really wise. But what was it that Jesus asked of Peter? and his closest disciples in that garden. Alistair, could I ask you to pop up that third passage again? Jesus didn't ask Peter, carry a sword, we're gonna beat people up, but instead his mission for his disciples was. Thank you, friend. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here whilst I pray. There it is, sit here whilst I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if, the, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for an hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Thanks, Alistair. That's great. So those instructions for, you, for Peter were, sit with me, remain here and keep awake, and keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial or temptation. Peter's fight was not meant to be with the mob. In that moment, however evil the mob was, Jesus' paradoxical plan was to go with them in submission to God the Father. Peter's fight was meant to be the fight of staying close to Jesus, staying awake with him. His fight was meant to be against his own bodily desires, in this case for sleep when his friend needed him, and against temptation. And he blew it. Peter utterly failed his fight. And instead, against Jesus's decision, maybe even threatening to undermine it, Peter chooses to fight the mob. It's the easier fight to pick. It's the one that requires less work. It scores a cheap win of feeling like I did something, but in fact, it makes the situation worse. Certainly doesn't help the thing that Jesus actually wanted for us in that moment. Dear beloved Kingdom Vineyard, my friends, do we sometimes find ourselves fighting the wrong fight? Maybe it's an argument on social media that we dive into to defend truth or even defend God, because he needs that. Maybe, maybe it's lazily identifying a different person or a different group as evil, thinking of them, others, as the baddies, instead of praying earnestly that Jesus meets them and shows them his truth and his love. And actually, whilst we're at it, earnestly praying that he meets us and shows us his truth and his love, because we need to know more of it too. Ephesians 6, 12 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but in fact, it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our fight is not against people. Peter's instructions for the fight are good ones for us. Sit with Jesus. Keep alert to him and what he has to say to us or ask of us. And pray that we may resist temptation and in times of trial, stay right with God. Sit with him. Keep alert to what he's saying and asking of us. Pray that we may resist temptation and stay strong in a time of trial. These instructions are much more to do with our own relationship with God, our own devotion to him, attentiveness to him, our own strength to stay with him instead of being drawn aside by the distractions and destructions that this world dangles in front of us. And they're less glamorous too. They may feel less effective than cutting off a bit of our enemy's head. They are a longer harder, more private work. Maybe, maybe our fight is for a cause, even a good or a worthy cause, like combating the evils of racism 
working to end people trafficking, working to alleviate poverty, those things are good. They're important works. And they're in line with the work of bringing in God's kingdom on earth. I think God cheers us on in those things and calls people into those fights. But I also think that we can run the risk of our cause, whatever it is, however good it is, becoming more important to us than our relationship with God, from which I believe that those good things get their strength anyway. Even with good things, friends, are we fighting the right fight? I believe that first and foremost, the fight we are called to is the fight to sit with Jesus, to keep alert to him, what he's saying to us and asking of us, and praying that we may resist temptation and in times of trial stay right with him. All other good and godly causes come from that place. And all causes that are not from God can be revealed as not from God in that place. I'm going to come to a close for this morning and I want to share with you that I'm excited to be back in John's gospel because there are riches aplenty for us to discover in these words in the coming weeks. To take these words and these riches to Jesus, to sit with him, to chew over with him and I think that each of us will have the chance to be inspired, breathed into by God's encouragement and challenge to us this Lent. Jesus chose to make you holy. He chose to fulfill, to live out the day of atonement, to clear the way for you to meet with God unhindered and to welcome the presence of God in all of his holiness. And I invite you to spend some time with God this week, asking him whether you're fighting the right fight or whether he might want you to, or might want to invite you to reassess where you spend your time and energy. I don't know, it's between you and the Lord, but it's a good prayer. And for now, I would love to pray for us. Let's pray, shall we? talked a lot about holiness this morning um, but I have a, such a strong sense that the Lord also wants us to know that that holiness comes in partnership with love he wants to make you holy because he loves you and so Lord for anyone who just really needs to know your presence your pure beautiful holiness and also and especially your love would you come even now come Holy Spirit glorious and worthy and mighty God. We invite you, we, we love you, we ask your presence to fall. Thank you so much for choosing to sacrifice, for choosing to opt in, to allow us to be atoned to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your truth and your clarity. 
for your direction. Would you speak clearly, Lord? Now and this week. worship you, Lord. Amen. Amen.